Precision medicine, is it hype or help, fact or fiction? Welcome to Precision Insight. This is a podcast series where the most influential thought leaders and innovators in healthcare sit with me to chat about the latest technologies and tools of precision medicine. What is coming up in the near future? If you want to know more about this incredibly fast-moving field of research and development, stay tuned. Hello, Precision Insights podcast listeners. This is your host, Roy St. Clair. Excited to take you on another journey related to precision medicine, this time speaking with the incredible Renda Teeple. Brenda is the Chief Clinical Officer and Director of Regulatory Affairs at Arbit Consulting, and is also heavily involved with one of our favorite organizations, Stripe, the Standardizing Laboratory Practices and Pharmacogenomics Initiative, a collaborative community joining public sector, private sector, and FDA to break down barriers and accelerate development of pharmacogenomics as a standard of care. In this discussion, we're going to talk about pharmacogenomics implementation, study design, and Renda's call to action for providers who are interested in implementing PGX. And with that, Renda, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So this is, it's a pleasure to speak with you. As always, I'm always thrilled to jump in and, and hear your perspective on things. For our audience, though, before we do jump into the discussion, maybe you can tell them a little bit about yourself, about your work, and your journey to embracing pharmacogenetics and pharmacogenomics as you have. Yeah, it's a long story, but I am a clinical pharmacist by training. I work, actually still work about once a week at the hospital I was trained at. Shortly after I completed my training, I went into regulatory affairs, which I obviously still do. That's my full-time job. I, for several years, worked as a clinical development pharmacist at a pharmacogenomics company. And I got started there actually because when I was doing my training, I've always found pharmacogenomics just fascinating. I went to the University of Minnesota and Dr. Pamela Jacobson, who I'm sure you're familiar with, introduced the, the concept of pharmacogenomics as just this sort of natural component to being a pharmacist and really got me interested in not only learning more, but sharing my knowledge and what I learn with other people. So every opportunity I had to educate people or do presentations in pharmacogenomics, I took. And that led to one of the other pharmacists I worked with, Dr. Megan Moen, introducing me to a pharmacogenomics company in the area where I had the opportunity to do clinical development work and clinical consults. I no longer work there, but still have a lot of opportunities to stay close to pharmacogenomics through Stripe and through doing regulatory affairs in a variety of different areas. So that's the short story. No, no. I, and I love that short story. It's interesting. You bring up Pamela and Pamela is wonderful. I mean, the work that she's been doing, particularly to normalize pharmacogenetics and to, to help people see that paradigm shift, really, which is going from it being a specialty area of, of genomics to saying this this is a standard part of what pharmacists should be doing. And the personalized care that pharmacists are able to provide and have been providing, even with simple things like MTM practice, can be greatly enhanced when we start to think of how someone's DNA affects their metabolism of different medications. That's so powerful. You've worked quite a lot with patients, you mentioned, on the regulatory side, but also the patient side. Has it been one of those sides that's pulled you deeper into the field? Has it been the, the impact you've seen on patients or has it been the, 
more technological pull of the industry moving forward? Wow, that is a great question. That would be very difficult for me to say one or the other pulls me more. I think I'm just so fascinated with with all of it. It's seeing the impact that it can have directly on patients is obviously very rewarding. Anybody that takes care of patients, when you find an opportunity or you can implement evidence-based practice um, and, and observe proved outcomes, I think that's naturally just extremely rewarding. But then there's the other side. I It's going to sound very nerdy. I just love regulatory affairs and research and understanding limitations of data. And, you know, I think that's part of what makes a good clinician as well is really appreciating why we do the things we do and why we make the recommendations that we make and to know when you can generalize study results to a specific patient requires this really deep understanding, in my opinion, of the data, the limitations of the data when it comes to pharmacogenomics, understanding the laboratory side of things and some of the nuances in that aspect also understanding who's conducting certain studies and why certain outcomes are looked at over others that may or may not be more clinically useful. And that part of it, it just definitely, I have a soft spot for because there's so much to know and you can't possibly know everything. And so it's sort of a never ending opportunity to learn and to know more and explore this wonderful area of science and medicine. And so I think that that's what keeps me as engaged and as excited about pharmacogenomics is that aspect. But the the personal value is obviously when when you can see that it it helps like real patients. Yeah, I think that's terrific that you can see the tangible benefits in a patient's life. But you can also work in an area where the evidence is changing fast, the science is changing fast, the awareness is changing fast, and you can contribute to it. There's so much opportunity for leverage as a you know, pharmacist provider like yourself. Maybe that's a good opportunity for us to bridge into you know, what's happening in the field on a longer time scale, because I think what you've mentioned here gets to how quickly things are changing on the short time scale. New evidence comes up. Can I rely on this? what patients does it apply to there's a lot of in the moment questions that providers come to us asking and i'm sure that you're helping lots of folks understand but you brought up this other point in in one of our previous conversations you told me a little bit about you know your work with stripe and and you said you were approaching that as an opportunity to play what you call the long game the the pgx long game i think it was so maybe you could walk us through a little bit uh who is stripe how are you involved And then you can tell us what you meant by that phrase. What does it mean to play the PGX long game? Yeah, so I think I'm sure a lot of people listening are familiar with Stripe, but if you're not, it is a collaborative community that was formed by this very broad group of stakeholders. There's providers, industry, regulators, payers, patients, anybody that that has a stake in pharmacogenomics, which is almost everybody can join and does have members 
that are working together to to really achieve common goals related to pharmacogenomics and harmonization of standards and optimizing its use in practice. My role with Stripe, I feel so lucky to be a part of Stripe, especially since I, I'm not directly associated with any industry or any specific research project. The opportunity to work alongside some of the people that I'm having an opportunity to work alongside is is just amazing. And what I am hoping to see out of Stripe, really, we can get into this long game and what really attracted me to it is the the opportunity to not just focus on is this specific gene drug pair a valid association, right? Because we can get that through, there's a lot of other organizations, you know, our regulators and drug labeling, CPIC, there's a lot of organizations that are looking at that. I think what there there's an opportunity to to look ahead and look at is our approach right now sustainable and and where is it leading us in the long term? And so that long game for me is about doing things now that will improve the odds of long-term success. And especially in pharmacogenomics, we're seeing a lot of groups challenging, rightfully so, some of the statements or claims around pharmacogenomics. There's a lot of areas, which I'm sure we'll talk about under construction, we say in pharmacogenomics. So it's this evolving science in a relatively young field. And I think we're just scratching the surface of what we can accomplish with understanding how our genes impact drug response. And so by having this collaborative community that is really getting so many different perspectives together to make sure that in the future, the processes that we have and the way that we approach the science is sustainable and set up to constantly improve itself. I think is is just really exciting. And what a better time to do it than right now. It's at a point where there is a lot of uh, critical assessments going on of the field as there should be. And so by everybody getting together and really working together to, to optimize the science and what we're doing with it is is just fantastic. It's really exciting. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And part of this is is conducting science in a way such that we're able to answer the questions of key different constituencies. Yeah. The regulator, the FDA being one, another one being payer organizations, another one being the clinical community who have uh, very fair reservations, but also a lot of enthusiasm. So how do you think about doing work with Stripe and then getting it out into the hands of, of researchers such that they're going to be laying down uh, research objectives and designing research in such a way that it's going to be serving those different communities. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's exactly right. One of the goals is really to help, help people set up their approach towards studying pharmacogenomics early on in a way that can serve those communities the best, because everybody does have a slightly different perspective 
on what they want to see. Clinicians or payer groups, regulators, everybody has different goals and they're coming from a unique perspective and they have different expertise. And so by creating tools that researchers can use, it's not about telling people what to do because that is not, I think, what anybody's intention is. It's giving them tools and resources that they can use to accomplish their goals. Their research is done in every area. And so by by really handing over the tools that they need to, to achieve their goals in the area of pharmacogenomics, I think we'll see a lot of good things come from it, hopefully. It is not a short process, as all good things, I think, take time. And so I think it's exciting to really have the opportunity to nothing feels rushed and nothing we don't have to get anything done tomorrow it's not about doing it now it's about doing it right and getting it right and really making sure that people have everything that they need to advance the science and to keep doing the amazing work that they're doing and to keep up with all of the changes that are going on and and really helping people connect the dots and and produce data that will help people who are maybe skeptical or unsure or don't think there's enough data in a certain area, really help them provide that data and get, get good research out there so patients can benefit and more patients can benefit from precision medicine and pharmacogenomics. That's really helpful. If we zoomed in on the, the the payers and the regulator specifically, what are the kinds of questions they're trying to answer here that they don't feel have been adequately answered by previous work? When you look at that gap between the approaches people have taken versus the response from those groups, how are you trying to help people think about designing things to better answer the question or even just better help people understand what the question is? I find that's often a big challenge is is different groups won't even understand what the other group was trying to ask in the first place. I think that that's a great question, and that is a to-be-determined part of what is going on. I think there are a lot of valid questions about the data from, to your put, the payers and regulators and clinicians, quite honestly. Yes, there is a lot of very good data, but there are also a lot of gaps and there's a lot of groups that have experience, rightfully so, questioning independently what the validity or what the utility of the data is and how generalizable is it. When you think about regulators, their job really is protect the the public. It's public health. And that is no small feat, right? It's a very important job. And so if they have concerns about a certain area of pharmacogenomics, obviously we know with their safety communication, they do have safety concerns. It's important to engage and not back away from that and say, let's dig into this. What is the concern and, and how can we fix that? And how can we generate the right evidence and the right data so that there aren't these significant safety concerns? Because they do a great job of protecting the public. So 
even though it creates challenges, especially in certain industries. I'm sure a lot of people have felt new challenges with certain things. I don't think that the backing away is going to help. I think we really need to engage and dig in and find what the community can do to help ensure that pharmacogenomics will be implemented safely and correctly and appropriately for any patient that's going to be receiving information based on a genetic test result. And I don't necessarily think that that's limited to pharmacogenomics. I think our regulators and our payers have been looking at genetic tests and their utility and how they're used and what's being tested for a long time. And so I think pharmacogenomics is just catching up to where many other areas of genetic testing is. Rightfully so. Again, I think the the solution isn't to not address concerns. The solution really is to take it head on and find what we can do to to get pharmacogenomics as a standard of care. I think that's that's terrific. And that really is, in so many ways, the long game, building those long-term sustainable bridges between key constituencies such that all those patients who will benefit are going to have access to it because there's strong alignment with payers, with regulators, and clinicians where everybody is able to see that opportunity, identify a good candidate, implement the tests, understand the results, and all the associated folks that need to pay for it or approve it are on board. They've seen what they need to see. They've had answered what they need to have answered. I think that's a, that's a very adept way at approaching the long-term needs of the space. Yeah, the payer, the payer perspective is extremely important, especially in America. It's very important. We don't have a national health system, and so we do depend on payer engagement and commitment to incorporating this into the system structure. And if they don't find an economic value, or if there's no data to support an economic value or not sufficient data, then it doesn't really make sense to pay for something. That's basic economic principles. Why would you reimburse something or pay for something if there's no return on investment? That is a very different perspective, right, than clinicians. Clinicians want to know it's going to matter for the patient that they're ordering it for, or at least on average. Our regulators look from an overall public safety perspective. Those are all very different perspectives and very different goals that that are all needed, really, to to optimize patient care. And so you have to have buy-in from all of these different groups that come from different perspectives, and the data is going to look different for each of them. The type of numbers and the type of outcomes that they want to see are going to be different. Absolutely. So there's a, there's a parallel line you had when we spoke previously. You mentioned the playing the PGX long game. You also mentioned, uh, and this is in relation to implementation, and urging your fellow clinicians to move forward with what we have today. And you said, we can't let perfect be the enemy of the good when it comes to launching pharmacogenetics. And now there's an obvious tension between those two ideas, right? On one side, really focusing on improving the quality of evidence in pharmacogenomics, but on the other side, championing the adoption and championing it today. And can you talk about how you see that tension between what we need on the evidentiary front then? also helping clinicians grapple 
with these questions of quality of evidence today, of payer support today, with ultimately, should I implement PGX or how should I implement PGX? How do you think about that tension? Yeah, that's a really good, that's a really good question. So yeah, as, as we've talked about, there's a lot of areas in pharmacogenomics that are under construction. And I think that that, not that other fields of science aren't, but in pharmacogenomics, I would say almost every time I go to review a gene or a specific gene drug interaction, something has changed. And that makes, when you're practicing evidence-based medicine, that makes it very challenging. Um, Not only to look back historically, old studies, what were they testing? How were they testing it? How were they haplotyping? What calls were they making? What ethnicity was it studied in? What did we know then, or what didn't we know then, rather, that we do know now, and can we account for that? And when you're practicing evidence-based medicine, you're trying to implement that into your practice, yet you also have all of these different areas that are under construction or or in process of making very important and needed changes. If you're not familiar with it, it can be very overwhelming almost. However, that is very important to acknowledge. However, we do know a lot. There is a lot that we do know and that we can have certainty with, right? Pharmacogenomics is incorporated into a lot of drug labeling. There are professional guidelines. The tests are accurate and reliable. So really trying to differentiate, right? Like what what can we have confidence in and what what can you be confident in really when you're applying pharmacogenomics to a specific patient? while simultaneously acknowledging that there's this work in progress that's happening. I think that's really hard to deal with when you're in a clinical setting because you oftentimes don't have time to go feel comfortable with how much uncertainty there is. You need to have confidence in the decisions that you're making. And that really can be challenging for a lot of people when pharmacogenomics is so new, if it's not incorporated into training or curriculums, a lot of the time if you don't have a pharmacist that's familiar with pharmacogenomics nearby that can help put the systems in place, it makes it challenging. But the data that we're confident in is very good data. And patients do benefit from knowing certain variants, whether they have them or don't. Sometimes knowing that you don't have a certain genetic variant is very helpful in guiding therapy. So you're not always looking for a positive or having a variant. Sometimes it helps to know that that's not a concern. So when we talk about under construction, I like to think if you took a four-lane highway to work and one lane was under construction, you would still go to work. It may be a little slower, should definitely slow down because you don't want to hit anybody on your way or, but you still go and you would deal with that lane that's under construction. You don't let it keep you from doing the right thing or advancing patient care in the analogy. So I think education is key. I think 
knowing where to go for information is key and having tools and resources for the people that will actually be using this in practice to be able to easily understand and be confident that the information that they're receiving is valid and is evidence-based and can be applied to their patient, despite all of the other areas that are under construction. That is going to be the new phrase I'm going to take from this conversation. I'm going to add to our list of phrases under construction. I like it. It illustrates, I think, another tension here, which is as we add something like pharmacogenomics, we're adding inherently some complexity. We're taking pharmacology, we're layering on genomics, we're pushing people towards evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practice of care at a time when the evidence is changing. And as you point out, some of it is really solid, but some of it does change when you look back six months or a year later, and that's inherently more complex. And you know, I'm sorry to interrupt, but like as the technology changes, it's not that the evidence changes necessarily. It was good evidence. It still is. We just learn more. You don't know sometimes what you don't know. And especially in the field of genetics, right? There's, there's so much that we know we still have to learn. And so if we wait until we think there's nothing left for us to learn, that's too late. And I think just accepting that we're constantly improving and that is a good thing. And hindsight is always twenty twenty. And knowing the limitations, but also just that acceptance that you'll never be able to have zero limitations of your data um, and being comfortable with that, I think is really important. I love that. I mean, the, the value to patient care today is worth the added complexity. And, and then, as you rightly point out, education's improving around this. We see pharmacy schools embracing pharmacogenomics across North America. We see great organizations getting better awareness, such as CPIC from GKB, where more people are really able to lean into them as a resource. And then obviously the work we do at Genexus of building tool sets to help clinicians have that trusted point of care resource, all trying to come together to say, let's take on this complexity, let's achieve some better clinical outcomes, and let's do it today while the field develops. I think you're, you're very right. We're at the start of a long game here. And there's no help in sitting on the sideline. So, Brenda, I, I love this. This has been a great discussion. Is there a single thing about implementing pharmacogenetics that you'd want to make sure people take away from this discussion? You know, we've covered ground on thinking about the evidence, on leaning into the complexity to achieve some of these patient benefits. But is there a singular thing when you go and talk to other clinicians who say, here's what I want you to walk away with? You know, I hate to plug my profession, but I really think involving a pharmacist, if you have uncertainty or if you don't have the time always to think about, because pharmacogenomics is just a piece of the puzzle. So if you don't have the time to really know how to incorporate all of that uncertainty, but also like good data around pharmacogenomics into practice, but you know that it could benefit your patients and time or expertise is a limitation. Pharmacists, reach out to your pharmacist, involve a pharmacist, even if your pharmacist doesn't have specific pharmacogenomics experience, they're significantly more equipped through their education 
to pick up on some of those complexities and understand some of the nuances and really incorporate it in the entire approach to that patient's care. They understand pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, drug-drug interactions, evidence-based medicine, so outcome study design, and and how, how genetics is just one piece of the puzzle organ function or dysfunction, body type, ethnicity, all of those things, age, that go into into thinking about a treatment plan for a patient. Pharmacists are right there, really ready to understand pharmacogenomics. And it's a component of most programs now. So especially new pharmacists coming out of schools or training programs with some additional education can be extremely valuable resources and really help bridge that gap if there's uncertainty. So I know it's a plug for my profession, but I think pharmacists are definitely on that forefront and the key to appropriate utilization of pharmacogenomics in every practice setting. Couldn't agree more. Pay attention to the evidence, lean in, engage with the space, embrace the complexity and call your pharmacist. Some good takeaways. Call your yeah, pharmacist. I like that. <laughs> call your pharmacist. That's perfect. So if, if our listeners would like to see more of your work, uh, if they'd like to reach out, what's the best place for them to find you? LinkedIn, or if they're interested in pharmacogenomics and really contributing to the field, join Stripe. I think the more different opinions and perspectives that can be added to that community, the better. Young researchers or pharmacists or clinicians, if you at all are interested, join the community and start getting involved and and ask the questions that you have because I think that that's the only way to move forward really is to get as many people involved as possible. So Brilliant. Well, thank you. Or shoot me an email if you just want to talk pharmacogenomics. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much. And I can't wait until our next chance to talk. Thanks, Brenda. Thank you. Have a good day.